0: Several years ago, they did a survey asking the people of the United States of America if they believe in God and if they are associated with any type of religion. And that was about 20 years ago now. The first time they did the survey, about 91% said, yes, we do believe in God and yes, we are associated with some type of religion. Left about 9% in the category of unbelief, skepticism, people who claim not to believe in God or agnostic, they didn't know if there was a God or not, about 9% of them. They did the same survey about 10 years later, asked the same demographic of people. The percentage had changed slightly. Instead of 9% claiming not to believe in God or not being associated with any religion, about 14 to 15% claimed not to believe in God or be associated with any type of religion. Still, of course, 85% or so claiming to believe in God and being associated with a religion only a, a shift of about five to six percentage points, but the troubling thing about those particular statistics is that the five percent shift was the biggest shift for any religious group in the country. What I mean is unbelief. Skepticism is the fastest, fastest growing religion in our nation. Now, I know that from the stats, but I can see it in the circles where I run on a fairly regular basis. Let me explain that to you. If you would have asked me when I was in, oh, I don't know, high school, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, if you would have said, Kyle, do you know someone who does not believe in God, who is a skeptic, who doubts the existence of God or doubts that the Bible is the inspired word of God, someone who claims that there is no God? If you would have asked me that, I would have first had to get you to define some of the words. If you would have said agnostic or atheism or something like that, I probably would have said, what in the world are you talking about? And then after you defined it for me, I would have probably then said, no, never met anybody like that. I'm 35 now. That was about 20 years ago. In fact, I ran in a fairly large youth group. We probably had 40, 50 in our youth group. I dare say if you would have had one of the kids in that youth group who would have said that they knew someone who does not believe in God, someone who doubts God's existence, maybe one, if if that. I was teaching at Maywood Christian Camp last year and the year before and so i decided i would start asking the young people this question i've asked it for the past two years that i've been teaching there the first year i had 42 students from ages 15 to 18 and i asked them a simple question do you know someone who does not believe in god out of the 42 students that i had 32 of them said yes the next year i had 40 students i said do you know someone who does not believe in god out of the 40 30 of them said yes and one of the young men sitting on the front row came up to me afterward and said he didn't believe in God. He was just there because someone had invited him and we had a very lengthy discussion on the evidence for the existence of God at Maywood Christian Camp last year. You see, things in our society and our culture have shifted away from traditional religious belief. It is no longer the case that a religious discussion starts. Well, you know, the Bible says over in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, this. And then the other person, when I was growing up, said, yeah, but well, what about over Romans 10, 9, and 10 says this? And you would say, yes, but if you'll go back to Romans 6, these people are already Christians, and here's this. And they would say, yeah, but what... And so you started on the level of everybody understanding there's a God and everybody understanding that the Bible's God's Word and all we're really trying to get down to is what exactly is the Bible saying? You see, that's where I came from and that is the tenor of most of the religious discussions that I was in up until I was about 25 or so. And then I started seeing a shift. And that shift went something like this. Well, the Bible says, hold on just a second. The Bible, why are you using the Bible to talk to me? Well, it's God's Word. God? Yeah, I'm not sure I believe in God. And so, building the foundation for the core beliefs of Christianity is what I've been involved in for the past 12 years since I've been at Apologetics Press. And what I have seen is that when Peter told us in 1 Peter 3, 15... But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. That means we had better be able to defend our core beliefs. And when I say core beliefs, I'm talking about the most basic. Yes, I know that there is a God and I can prove it because this. Yes, I know that the Bible is God's Word and here's how I can show you that. Yes, I know that Jesus Christ is God's Son and here's the evidence by which I can prove that to you. That is giving a defense, and it is curing the sickness of the heart of doubt. Now, in the religious world today, some people think that doubt is something that is good, that you should foster, that you should appreciate. In fact, on the way up here, just as I was thinking about the lesson, I drove by a Unitarian Universalist church, and on their sign is the statement. It's permanently up there. It says, to question is the answer. Well, that's not true at all. That's just a false statement. Jesus Christ himself said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you were to look through Jesus' writings, you would see that he never had any time for doubt. In fact, he never said, oh, you know, I'm so glad that you're questioning that. Maybe I just didn't give you enough evidence. Let's just look at that again. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, the idea that it's... uh, Good or or something we should appreciate that a person is not totally convinced in the belief that there is a God in the knowledge that Jesus is his son in the knowledge that the Bible is his word that's just not scriptural in fact if you were to go to 1 John chapter 5 verse 13 John said he was writing to his readers that they may know that they have eternal life and that they may continue to believe in the name of the son of Jesus Christ of the son of God that they may do what? know that they have eternal life. You see, Christianity is a religion of knowledge. Now, like I said, in the greater religious world, lots of times, even in what we would call greater Christendom, people who claim to be Christians, that idea is being thrown by the wayside. And here's how I know that. I was teaching a class on the inspiration of the Bible. I see this happen all the time as well. And I was asking the young men and women in the class if they could explain to me why they know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And one of the guys raised his hand. He said, yeah, I know why the Bible is the inspired Word of God. He said, because it says it is. And I said, well, you know, that's true. And I went through the evidence for the Bible claiming to be the inspired Word of God. You probably know quite a bit of that. If I were to ask you, does the Bible claim to be the inspired Word of God? Well, the answer to that is overwhelming yes. Absolutely, positively. You go to what? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you were to go to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says, For no prophecy of Scripture came by any private interpretation or origin, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you were to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, you would read where Paul said, When we came to you, we rejoiced, because when you received our word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You know, if you were to start in Genesis and you were to go all the way to the book of Revelation, you know how many times you would count that the inspired writers claimed that they had the message from God? It would be somewhere in the vicinity of 3,000 times. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And the burden of the Lord came to Malachi. And God said to Jeremiah, in fact, in Jeremiah alone, if I understand it correctly, there are about 540 different times that the book of Jeremiah itself claims to be the inspired Word of God. My Bible's got about 1,300 pages or so. If it's got 1,300 pages or so, and and let's say the Bible claims to be inspired about 2,700 times from Genesis to Revelation, how many times is that per page? Well, you're looking at at least two times per page the Bible claims to be inspired by God. And so I said, you know, great, yeah. That's exactly right. The Bible does claim to be inspired by God, but so does the Quran. You know, the Quran claims to be inspired by God. In fact, if you'll read through the Quran, you will see that on numerous occasions it purports to be the message of Allah the Most High. Hundreds of times it does. The Hindu Vedas claim to be inspired by God. The Book of Mormon claims to be inspired by God. The Pearl of Great Price claims to be inspired by God. There are at least nine books in the world that make a serious claim to inspiration. Now, you and I both believe that the Bible is inspired and the Book of Mormon is not and the Pearl of Great Price is not and the Hindu Vedas are not. But why? You see, to say, well, okay, the Bible says it's inspired means absolutely, really, positively nothing. If it is, you expect it to claim it, but just because it claims it doesn't mean it is. You know, if I stood up here tonight and I said, guys, my name is Kyle Butt, I'm the President of the United States of America. Kyle Butt is my name, and there's one President of the United States of America who happens to be me. Robert Kyle Butt, born November 11th. November 20th, rather, 1976. Bad when you get your own birthday wrong. (laughs) He happens to be the President of the United States, and he's standing here tonight. What if I said that 3,000 times tonight? Well, after about the first 150, I'm sure one of your elders would stand up and say, "Uh, thank you, Kyle, for being here, but you are missing something, and we'll have someone else finish it. Would that make me the President of the United States of America if I stood up here and claimed it 1,000 times, 2,000 times? It wouldn't, would it? So I said to this young man, I said, great, I'm glad that the Bible does claim to be inspired, but that's just not real evidence for it. I said, do you got anything else? He said, yeah. He said, here's really what you got to do. You got to believe that the Bible is the Word of God by faith. Now he's right in a sense, and in another sense he is as wrong as wrong can be. And let me explain to you why. When he says you have to believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God by faith, our culture has misdefined the concept of faith. Do you know if you go to the Webster's Dictionary and you look up the word faith, it will say a firm belief in something you cannot prove. The American Heritage Dictionary says a firm belief in something you know is not true. Sam Harris, three-time best-selling atheistic author, probably the second most well-known atheist in the country, actually probably in the world, says faith is the excuse people give each other to believe in things that are irrational. You know what faith really means in most people's discussion of the term. Most people use the word faith to mean a leap in the dark when you have come to the end of the evidence but you really want to believe in something and so you tuck a firm belief in your heart without any evidence and you just accept something because it feels so right. That's what most people think of as faith. You know what that young man was saying is I can't give you the evidence which... If I were tonight, I could rattle off the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, including the predictive prophecy, the perfect unity, the scientific foreknowledge, the absolute perfect accuracy of the book, the 1,550 years over which it was written by the 40 different authors and not a single one of them ever making a mistake. We've got the evidence for it, and I could rattle that off for you. And generally speaking, the lesson takes me about, well, if I were to really break it down, it would take me about six hours to go through each one of those, but... We're not going to go through each one of those, but I'm just saying if you wanted the evidence, I could give it to you. But what this young man was not saying was we need the evidence. He was saying, you know, i got a firm feeling in my heart, and I think that should be good enough. Let's see how that stacks up against another belief. You go up to the Muslim, and you say, is the Quran the inspired word of God? He says, yeah, it claims it is. You say, well, a claim for inspiration doesn't really mean anything. What kind of evidence can you give me? He says, well, I don't have any evidence, but my mama told me it was, and so I've got a firm belief in my heart that it is, and I'm going to trust that firm belief in my heart, and I think that's going to get me to heaven. Well, is that firm belief in his heart going to get him to heaven? The firm belief that the Quran is the inspired word of God when it contradicts the Bible on numerous occasions and flies in the face of the peace that God offers? No, it's not going to get him to heaven. Even though he really believes it, he's really sincere. That sincerity is not going to do it, is it? That's not what real faith is. Real faith has never been, listen to me, has never, ever, ever been a leap in the dark without evidence. Real faith is always coming to the proper conclusion based on previous evidence. Always. That's what it always throughout the Bible has meant. So when you go to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 and you read without faith it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Understand that when it says without faith it's impossible to please God that does not mean and has never meant that you've got to have a warm fuzzy feeling in your heart about something that you don't have the evidence to prove. Faith is believing in something because of the evidence that God has presented. Now, I'm going to give you several examples of that. We'll just go back to Moses. If you were to look in Hebrews there, chapter 11, and you would see all of the people that did stuff by faith, you would see that the Bible commends Moses for keeping the feast of the Passover by faith. Now, here's what that means. Moses kept the Feast of the Passover because God told him to because there was some good evidence why he should. Uh, Let's look at how the situation played out. God asked Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to go down. I want you to pull the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Moses says, well, I'm slow of tongue. I'm not going to be your best option. You really probably should get somebody else. And what if they don't believe me? And God says, Moses, put your hand. Well, first he said, throw your staff down. The staff turns into a snake. Then he says, Moses, pick it back up. He picks it it back up. It turns back into a staff. Then he says, Moses, stick your hand in your vest, pocket, basically is what he was saying. He stuck his hand in his pocket, pulled it out. It was leprous, as white as snow, an incurable disease that nobody could possibly get off unless it was some type of miracle. God told him to stick his hand back in his bosom. He called it and he pulled it back out and it was clean just like it was before he put it in. Those were some of the signs that God was going to give to Moses. And then he says, I want you to go present this information to Pharaoh, and I want you to bring my children out of Egypt. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. God has said, Pharaoh says, who is God that I should trust him or that I should even know his name? I'm not going to let your people go. And Moses says, if you don't let God's people go, then I'm going, God is going to turn the water to blood. Pretty simple. Pharaoh doesn't let his people go. What happens to the water? It gets turned to blood exactly like Moses said. All right. Pharaoh is having a change of heart. Moses comes and says, Let my people let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh thinks about a little while, but then says, No, I'm not gonna let your people go. He says, Okay, if you don't let my people go, I'm gonna send frogs on the land. Pharaoh decides not to let his people go. What comes up on the land? Frogs. In the kneading bowls, in the ovens, ever and just as an aside, you ever you ever cooked a frog in an oven? Now, I've never done that, never have. I think that would be one of the most disgusting things that I've ever seen. I'll tell you what I did do one time. We cooked a, a metal ark. Me and my buddy thought that we would eat a metal ark and we were probably about 14, maybe even younger than that, but, boy, we thought this looks just like a quail. It ought to be great. And so we stuck a arc on a cookie sheet and stuck it in my mom's oven, and we cooked that thing thinking it was going to be the greatest-tasting bird that you had ever eaten. Well, it was the most disgusting, terrible, horrible piece of meat, I guess you would call it, that we stuck the entire kitchen up. It dripped all in the oven, all over the place. And for the next month and a half, we were tasting metal arc on everything that came out of that oven. Sausage balls plus metal arc is what we were, I mean, it's just disgusting. And I have always thought, you get a bunch of frogs in your kneading bowls, in your ovens, in your bed, in your bathroom, just disgusting. Well, Moses said, you're going to have frogs. That's what came up. Pharaoh wanted the frogs gone, so Moses comes back, he says, "What? do me the honor of telling me when you want the frogs to leave. And Pharaoh said, about this time tomorrow. So about that time the next day, the frogs left. So you go through nine plagues. You get the flies, the murine, the lice, the hail, the darkness, and you get to the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Now, God gave some simple instructions. You kill a yearling lamb, you take the blood, you strike it on the doorpost and on the top of your door. If you do, I won't kill anybody in that house. If you don't, I'm going to kill the firstborn in the house. Now by faith, the Israelites who obeyed God and established the first Passover feast killed the lamb, put the blood in a bowl, took hyssop, and struck the doorpost and the top of their door with the blood. Did they have a good reason to think that whatever God said was what was going to happen? When God said water to blood, what happened? Water to blood. When God said frogs are coming, what happened? Frogs. When God said the next day frogs will be gone, what happened? Frogs were gone. When God said flies are coming up, what happened? Flies. When God said lice are coming up, what happened? Lice. In fact, what, I think it was the seventh plague, the hail. He said, at this time of the day, I'm going to send hail. And the text says every one of the Egyptians and the Israelites who believed in the Word of God got their servants out of the field. And guess what happened? I think it was, I I don't know if I've done the calculation, but for some reason I'm thinking it was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Let's just say it was for illustrative purposes here. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, if you believed God and were watching what had happened, you got your servants out and you saved their lives. If you didn't believe in God and you weren't doing it by faith and you left your servants out there in the field, guess what? They got hit with hailstones that were the size of a talent apiece, which is about 75 pounds. And a 75-pound hailstone coming at your servant is going to mean you've got one less servant. Now, was that by faith? Absolutely. What does faith mean? Faith means you look at the evidence and you come to an accurate conclusion based on that evidence. When they established a the Passover and obeyed God to strike their doorpost with blood, were they doing that by faith? Yeah. Were they doing it as a blind leap in the dark, having no understanding or reason why in the world they should do that? No, because that has never been what faith is. Now, let's look at the city of Jericho. You'll recall there in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encompassed or circled about for seven days. You know, why in the world is that something by faith? I mean, did the Israelites just have a warm, fuzzy feeling in their heart that, all right, maybe this will happen if we just do what God says? We don't have any evidence for this. Now, think of all the evidence that God had provided for them up until the city of Jericho. Not only had He brought them all out of the land of Egypt, but then He had fed them through the wilderness for 40 years with manna every single day of their lives, every single time that God had told them anything was going to happen, it happened exactly like he said. They had watched as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of a cloud by day took them through the wilderness. And wherever it stopped, they would stop and set up camp. When it left, they would leave. When it stopped, they would stop. They got up to a miraculous meal every morning. They watched the pillar move them about for 40 Years. And then as they're walking into the land of Canaan, God says when the priest stepped foot on the bank of the Jordan River and their feet touched the water, then the river is going to build up. And that's exactly what happened. The priests who were holding the Ark of the Covenant, when their feet touched the water, a huge pile of water, wall, I think it's described as, started building up. You think about that, all of the people downriver that were the heathen Canaanite nations, you think they were wondering what happened to their water for a day and a half or however long it took the Israelites to get across the Jordan River? And then they get across the Jordan River and God says, now, you've seen everything that I've done up to this point, everything that I say always happens... Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to circle around the city of Jericho one time for six days, once a day. On the seventh days, I want you to circle around seven times, and I'll give you the city. Now, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encompassed about for seven days. The, what a warm fuzzy feeling in their heart. You know, we don't, we don't really know why that we're doing this. Not a whole lot of evidence to point in this direction, but oh, I guess we'll give it a shot. Is that what faith is? Absolutely positively not never been what faith is faith is coming to a proper conclusion based on the evidence now remember our definition there from hebrews chapter 11 our statement without faith it's impossible to please god for he comes to god must believe that he is is there evidence for a belief that there is a god you know some people say no you know there's just not much evidence a God just hadn't given me enough evidence. One of my best friends from high school, best friend in the world, in fact, he went with us to uh, the Bahamas on mission trips for probably five years running. He was in personal Bible studies, had converted people. He was at every Devo, at every youth activity that I was ever at just about. If you were to ask me someone that I believe really loved the souls of people, I would have said, this young man. I guess it was about five years ago, one of our mutual friends said, we'll call him John, said, you know, John doesn't believe in God anymore. I said, what, what are you talking about? Went to a Christian high school, then went to David Lipscomb University. I said, what in the world are you talking about? So I got back on the internet and typed him in on email and said, John, I heard somebody said, you don't believe in God anymore. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, what in the world? I said, you know, we used to study the Bible with people. He said, well, I just don't believe there's enough evidence for God's existence. Well, that's ludicrous. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, For since the beginning of creation, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I've got entire lessons going through the evidence for the existence of God. Going through the perfect design in nature, showing that design has to have an intelligent designer. Going through the idea of cause and effect, showing that that there has to be a first eternal cause. Is it true that you believe in God by faith? Yes. But is it true that you believe in God because there's a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart and there's not enough evidence to back it? Absolutely, positively not. Let me give you another example. Elijah stands on top of Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal are on the other side. And also about 400 prophets of Asherah. There are about 950 of them against Elijah. Elijah says, here's how the contest is going to go. You guys are going to build an altar and you're going to put a bull on it. And if your God sends fire from heaven, then you know that your God is the true God. I, the single prophet over here of God, of Jehovah, I'm going to put a altar over here and i'm going to put a bull on top of this altar and if god jehovah god sends fire from heaven to consume this sacrifice then he is god is that acceptable evidence for you guys and the israelites said yeah that'll do it that will provide us with enough information and evidence to conclude which of these two is God." All right, of course, you know the story. The prophets of Baal dance around all morning long. They cut themselves, and they scream, and they yell. Elijah stands over on the top of Mount Carmel and makes fun of them, says, uh, maybe uh, you're maybe not yelling loud enough. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's gone on a journey, and he's just uh, gone for a little while, just prodding them. They scream louder, cut their worse. The Bible said blood's flowing all over the place. And it says, no one heard them, no one answered. Baal wasn't a god, never was a god. They just made him up as a figment of somebody's imagination. Time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah's standing over on Mount Carmel. He makes an altar, puts a bull on top of that altar, tells him to go fill up a bunch of buckets of water, dump it on the altar, tells him to do it again, dump it on the altar, tells him to do it a third time, dump it on the altar. He's trying to make sure everybody understands he's not cheating. What's he doing? Adding evidentiary value. I'm not cheating here. This is soaking wet. There's no possible way I could start this myself. Praise to God. Fire comes down from heaven. Fire to such a degree that it's not like it starts a little spark and it takes about 20 minutes for it to burn. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the bull, consumes the stones, licks up every single drop of water, burns everything completely within minutes. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said... The Lord, He is God. Now, did they say that by faith? Absolutely positively. Based on what? Evidence that God had just sent fire from heaven and toasted rocks that nobody had ever seen be able to get burnt, along with gallons and gallons and gallons of water exactly when Elijah prayed for it to happen. No accident, no possible uh, conditions where you could say it's a coincidence. What do we have here? We have evidence that provides rationale for the conclusion Jehovah is God. That's what you've always had. Always. Faith has never been a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart based not on evidence, but on a feeling. That's why Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Did he say, you know what? You can come pretty close to knowing the truth, but there's really no way to know anything. really. It's just kind of... You can come close, but you can't know it. Is that the... the idea you get from Jesus, that, well, you can know it more than you can know anything else, but you can't really know anything much. And so there's a good high probability of it. There's a real good chance of it, but, yeah, it's just not ever what you get from Jesus. Now, let me ask you this question. Should you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God by faith? To ask is to answer. I mean, that's obvious. Yes, absolutely, positively. No wondering about that. No question about that. Yes, you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God by faith. Is that a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart or a statement that you can say, I know for a fact, no, as sure as I'm standing here, no, as sure as my name is Kyle Budd or whatever you're... I know for a fact Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, let's look at that. Jesus came to the earth and fulfilled approximately 300 Messianic prophecies. He was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, exactly where Micah said he was going to be born several hundred years before he was born there. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey exactly like the prophet said he was going to. He was buried with rich people, basically buried in a rich man's tomb, exactly like Isaiah 53 said he was going to be buried. He lived and he died exactly like the prophets had predicted he would, some of them a thousand years before he was ever born. If you were to go to Psalm 22, the psalm starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same statement that Jesus makes while he's hanging on the cross, and yet it was written by David a thousand years before Jesus Christ ever arrived on the earth, and it talks about the enemies of the Messiah, mocking him, making fun of him, piercing him, and casting lots for his garments. A thousand years before Jesus was ever here, the prophet, Holy Spirit, through David, predicted that people would cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Now, Jesus shows up, born of a virgin, exactly like Isaiah had predicted he would be, exactly in the place Micah had predicted he would be born. Jesus grows in wisdom, stature, favor with God and men. And then He starts His earthly ministry at approximately the age of 30. He goes into Cana of Galilee, changes the water to wine, starts doing miracles all over the place, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, raising the dead. And He says, don't believe me just because I'm saying it. The miracles that I do, they'll prove it. Oh, and then... At the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus is there at the Jordan River. John the baptizer, his cousin, is getting ready to baptize him. John says, I don't really need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. Jesus says, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. John the baptizer immerses him in water. When Jesus comes up out of that water, heavens split apart. The Holy Spirit in the shape of a dove comes and lands on Jesus' shoulder and a voice. God the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus fulfills every prophecy. He does miracles the likes of which nobody had ever seen. God speaks from heaven and explains that he's his son. The Holy Spirit rests on him. Jesus' own testimony is there. The testimony of John the Baptizer is there. And then Jesus predicts his own death and his own resurrection. And he says, I'm going to go into Jerusalem and the Chief priest and the Jews are going to kill me. But three days I'll come back. In fact, so accurately did he predict his own death and resurrection that the Jews knew exactly what he had said and they went upon his pilot, remember, and they said this deceiver while he was alive explained that he was going to come back from the grave in three days. Will you give us some soldiers so that we can secure the grave so that his... Disciples or apostles don't lie and steal his body and say that he came back from the grave. So then Jesus comes back from the grave exactly like he says he was gonna. Fulfills every single prophecy. Does miracles the likes of life which nobody had ever seen. Teaches in a way nobody had ever done. Could stop a sea storm with a word of his mouth brings people back from the grave, predicts his own death, rises on the third day, and then when you look in the book of Acts, in the first chapter in verse 3, the Bible says, presented himself alive by many, well, there's a word there that you've probably seen before, infallible proofs. What's an infallible proof? An infallible proof is a piece of evidence that if you're thinking rightly, there's no possible way you can deny. Now, if your mind is not making connections properly, if you really have a mental type of insanity or something like that, then you could say, I'm looking right here at the body of Jesus. The answer to that is yellow flowers. You understand what I'm saying by that? What I mean is, if you're thinking Accurately and rightly, there's no possible way that the evidence that Jesus presented for His resurrection could be misconstrued to mean anything else than Jesus Christ came back from the dead exactly like He said. An infallible proof is a proof that cannot be gainsaid by a person who's thinking rightly. Now, you're supposed to believe in Jesus by faith. Absolutely positive. Faith based on what? Evidence. It always has been. It always will be. Christians, Paul explained to Festus in Acts chapter 26 when he was speaking there before King Agrippa. He said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and the words of reason. You see, that's the beauty of Christianity. Christianity is the only philosophical religion and thinking. Well, what would you say? You could say religion. It's the only group of teachings and thinking that makes perfect sense in every single aspect of the teaching and every single aspect of the evidence. When you believe that God is by faith and you believe that the Bible is His Word by faith and you believe that Jesus Christ is His Son by faith, it's not because you got a warm fuzzy feeling in your heart. It's because there is evidence that leads to that conclusion and when you follow that evidence, it demands that you arrive at that particular conclusion. Now, in 1976, a man by the name of Thomas B. Warren had a Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University, a member of the Lord's Church, was debating a man by the name of Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was the world's leading atheistic philosopher in 1976. He had presented an atheistic paper under the Socratic Society that C.S. Lewis was the chair of, and that atheistic philosophical paper is to this day the most widely read, written on, and distributed atheistic paper in the world. For 60 years, Anthony Flew was recognized as the world's leading atheist. Thomas B. Warren, in 1976, in their debate, drilled Anthony Flew, just absolutely demolished him. About 32 years later, Anthony Flew came out with a book titled, There Is No God. The word no was marked out, so that the title actually reads, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Became a Believer. And in 2004, Anthony Flew wrote a book in which he concluded, I have looked at the evidence to such a degree and studied it so in-depthly that there is no possible way that if I follow that evidence, I can arrive at any other conclusion than that there is an eternal, supernatural creator responsible for the construction of this universe. the world's leading atheist for 60 years. He says, oh, hey, by the way, I changed my modus operandi. I changed the way I do things. And I decided I was just going to start looking at the evidence and following it where it leads. And it led me to the overwhelming conclusion that there has to be a God. That's exciting, but it's sad in another way. Because in the book, he said, well, I haven't, really decided on what that God might have provided as far as religion goes. I've looked at the idea of Christianity and right now it looks like it could be the best out of all of them, but I just haven't done the work on it. Maybe I will later. Sadly, it looks like he died before he became a Christian. He was getting closer, but not close enough. And let me tell you something. There's not a single thing that God has ever said that hasn't come true ever. If you're just making decisions based on evidence, if in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel, any person that does not know God or does not obey the gospel is what, what's going to happen to them. Jesus Christ is coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on those people. There's not, never been a statement in all of the Bible that God has said something and it has not turned out exactly like He said. Now, if you know that there's no possible way that you can be saved without obeying the gospel, but you also know that Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. I am going to give you rest if you will obey. What do you need to do to be on God's right side when Jesus Christ comes again? That question has been answered numerous times in the book of Acts, most simply in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When Peter stood up and told all the people on the day of Pentecost that they had crucified the Son of God, they were pricked in the heart, and they said, Men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter looked at them and said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. You become a Christian by faith, based on evidence, so that you can say exactly what John said in 1 John 5, verse 13. Little children, these things I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life? You could know it tonight by repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to respond to the Lord's invitation. I hope you will as we stand and as we sing.